We turn in God's Word this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. As we finished the Gospel of Mark uh, a number of weeks ago, we have begun to make our way now through the book of Colossians. As sort of uh, the, the result of the resurrection. And uh, we have seen uh, so far in Colossians God's Word to us in, in beautiful ways. This morning we're taking up that section of verses uh, 15 through 20, but I'll be reading uh, 15 through 23, 15 through 23 of Colossians chapter 1. This is that great prayer, great anthem, great hymn of praise to Jesus Christ. Paul had just ended uh, previous to this, in this very long sentence, that we have been transferred into the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus Christ. What is that kingdom like? And who is the king of that kingdom? Here is God's word to us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's fire the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, for the glorious truth of that word, that we might know, Lord, that this is not the word of Paul. This is not even the word of man. But this is your word. It's inspired. It's infallible. It is inerrant. It is timeless. It is eternal. And so, Father, from that word, we pray, even as we have read it, as you breathed it out to us this morning, that now, Father, you would indeed encourage us and strengthen us in this word as well. In Christ's name, God's people saying, Amen. So we're on the second half of this very, very long sentence of Paul. 218 word sentence. Now comes the second half of that as we would continue to think about as I introduced last Lord's Day. The diagramming of this sentence and how to put it all together and where the verbs and where all the clauses would be. And yet... Uh, here, Paul 
would direct our attention. Even as one would think one becomes exhausted, uh, yet it, it's almost building. The anthem, the crescendo, is actually growing and building as Paul makes these words to us today alive through the work of the Spirit. A note, though, as to what is happening here. I, I've alluded to it a couple of times uh, in the previous messages on Colossa, and we'll get into the weeds, so to speak, a little bit more with it uh, in the weeks that are to come. But we have to understand that this whole book is written in the background of the fact that the church at Colossa is being attacked, I'm not sure the word attacked, but is being influenced by false teachers. False teachers, uh, a false teaching that is basically saying anything that has to do with material stuff is evil. And only that which is of a spiritual nature is good. Paul is coming with the word of God to dispel that falsehood. Because you see what that ultimately leads to is a denial that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It seeks to say, oh no, he's just divine, he's, he's not human. And it's a denial of the truth of who Jesus Christ truly is. So Paul is building towards that. He's not, he's not going at it straightforward, but in everything that Paul has read, he, he's, he's coming there. He, he's preparing uh, the church at Colossae, as it were, for his argument. That he's given the basis for where he's going to go in a little while. So we're going to look at this passage, these verses this morning under three main headings. First, that Christ as the image of God. What does Paul mean when he, when he writes that? That he is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, that Christ is over all creation. The firstborn of all creation. What, what, what does that mean? And then thirdly, that Paul later on talks about in verse 18, that he, that is Christ, is the head of the body, the church. So we'll look at this beautiful anthem of praise under those headings. Christ, the image of God, Christ over all creation, and then thirdly, Christ, the head of the church. So the Greek word that's used here for the word image is the word icon. It's spelled in the Greek E-I. K-O-N, um, which is kind of interesting because in our day and age, that, that has all sorts of ideas, doesn't it? Now, first of all, what's interesting is there used to be a camera, I don't know if they still manufacture it or not, that was called an icon camera. You took a picture, what did you get? You got the image of that which you took. And one of their promotions was, it's the exact image. Well, where did they get the idea of calling a camera an icon? Because icon in the Greek means image. So you take a picture, you get the image, the likeness of that 
which you were looking at through the lens or were observing with the natural eye. Right? It's also this, this little thing we now put on computer screens, right? Everything's got a little icon, right? And you click on the icon, and what do you get? Well, you're supposed to, the way it's supposed to work, is you click on the icon for the app, and what do you get? You get the app. You get the thing that is represented by the icon. In the Greek Orthodox Church, as many of you know, uh, those uh, Greek Orthodox churches lay claim to the icons, which are supposedly the exact representations of that which they really were. So you've got an icon of John the Baptist. You've got an icon of Jesus. You've got an icon of Mary. All of which are supposedly the representation of. Now all of those things are, are in a sense the right understanding of the word. It means a representation with a precise likeness. When Jesus asked, for example, uh, when he's confronted about the, the, the coin and is it lawful to pay taxes and so on, whose image, whose likeness, whose icon is on the coin? Right? So the idea of that picture of Caesar on the coin was the idea, well, that is the image of the icon of Caesar. That's what the word means. But, you know, if you take out a $5 bill, take out a $1 bill, a 20, maybe some of you have a 50, maybe some of you have a 100 with you today, and look at the portrait that's on there, you'd probably ask yourself, I wonder if they really look like this, right? Did, did they really, is that really the way they appear? I've seen so many different pictures of Abraham Lincoln, I don't know which one is which, right? Because I've never seen Abraham Lincoln, especially when now you put it on a coin and it, and it becomes a little less defined yet. Is that really what they look like? Right? So how are we to understand this then? See, in our day and age, we'd go, he is the likeness of, well, yeah, sort of, yeah, sort of, kind of, uh, maybe a little bit, maybe on the edges. Jesus Christ, or as Paul refers to it here, Christ is, the, is sort of like God. Is that what Paul means, that he's sort of like? No, okay, he is the icon in the Greek the representation with a precise likeness. So much so, look at the scriptures. Colossians 1.19. Listen to how Paul writes it here. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, how exact an image is Christ of the invisible God? Well, when one sees Christ, one sees all the fullness of God. It doesn't sound like, eh, maybe sort of, kind of, a little bit. That sounds pretty full. That sounds pretty complete. Go with me to Colossians 2, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In the body of Christ dwells 
the whole fullness of the deity of God. Do you, you, know, do you go back to, to my introduction about, you know, the material is evil, the spiritual is good? Look where Paul's going, right? What did Jesus have? He had a material body. Does that mean it's bad? No, no, no. The whole fullness of God dwelt in Christ in a bodily form. Or we could go to John 1.1. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Word, the eternal Logos, God, becomes flesh. Or turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. And you're probably going to want a little marker because I'm going to be going back and forth to Hebrews chapter 1 as well. Hebrews 1. Listen to how the author here describes this image, this likeness of Christ to the invisible God. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact, notice the precise language here, the exact imprint of what? His nature. In Christ, the exact fullness of God dwells. That which God is dwells in Christ. See, we have to get away from the fact of, of what is not meant here is, well, when Jesus Christ came, he had this physical body. That physical body is the exact likeness of the invisible God. Well, that don't work, does it? You can't have an exact likeness of that which is invisible. But that's not what Paul means. Paul doesn't mean that Jesus' body looked like God's. That isn't what he's saying. What he's saying is, in the body of Christ dwelt the exact imprint of the nature of God. All-knowing, all-seeing, all-loving, just, all-powerful. Everything that God is dwells in Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. You see, we've been transferred into the kingdom from last week of His Son. We've been transferred into the kingdom of Christ. Oh, Man, really like to have been transferred into the kingdom of God. That sounds much more important. And Paul's like, hey, wake up, folks. That is the kingdom of God. There is nothing greater. There is no kingdom above. Why? Because the kingdom of the Son is the kingdom of God. They are one in the same. Oh, all the heresies that Paul is dispelling here. Right? The, the, the heresies about the distinction of Christ's humanity and divinity, the, the problems with the, the, the Trinity and so on, and that Christ really isn't fully God. Hear this. Christ is God. That's Paul's message. He is God. And in Christ, God, is incarnate, not a lesser part of God, not a lesser form of God, not a God who is less than God, fully God. 
That's the word of God. Next time your friends from the various cults come knocking, there's the word, the fullness of God, the exact, the exact imprint of his nature is there. Secondly, back to Colossians chapter 1. Not only does Paul say he is the image of the invisible God, he is also the firstborn of all creation. In other words, Christ is over all of creation. He is the firstborn. Now, not in a biological sense. We, we know that, that Christ is begotten, not made. right? We, we put other scriptures into here and so on, and, and we know what's, what, that Paul doesn't mean that. In a biological sense. What Paul means by that, firstborn, is in a positional sense. Christ is in the position of the firstborn. What does that mean? Well, when we take an Old Testament understanding of that, right? The idea of the firstborn. The firstborn is the one who rules... As the Father rules. That the firstborn is the one who is given the authority of judgeship. And he shall come and judge the living and the dead. So this is the position of Christ. Who is Christ? He is in the position of the firstborn. He is the, well, let's go back to, to Hebrews. The Hebrews passage. How is it expressed in verse 2? But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. He is the heir. That's what Paul means. Christ is the firstborn, the heir the ruler of this creation. Why? Verse 16 tells us why. Why is he the ruler of this creation? For by him all things were created. If you don't have that verse, under, if you're in the habit of underlining verses in your scriptures, that's one you need to underline. For by him all things were created. Remember back when years, several, many years ago now, the discussions are about, you know, how the creation of the world, and it's not the, the evolution and, and, and the creation story emerging from the Scopes trial and stuff. It's the stuff that, that came out of the church. And this idea was fostered that what does it really matter what you believe about creation? It has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Look at that verse. Does creation have something to do with Jesus Christ? You have to deny the word of God to say creation has nothing to do with Christ. Why? Verse 16. For by him all things were created. Why is Christ over all of creation? Remember the background. Physical stuff is bad. What about Christ? He rules over all this physical stuff. It's not bad. He is the ruler of it. Why is he the ruler? Because he made it. 
He created it. He called it into existence, both the material and the spiritual world. Notice how Paul emphasizes that, right? Visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things owe their existence to Christ. All things owe their function to Christ. All things owe their purpose to Christ. He is the word. And God spoke the word, and creation comes into existence. For by him, for by him, whose kingdom am I a part of? I am part of Christ's kingdom. Christ, who is the ruler over all creation because he is the maker of it all. That's whose kingdom you and I have been transferred into. But he not only is the maker, note verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. They hold together. He is the sustainer of this creation as well. He, he, he didn't just make it and then leave it. He is actively, presently, continually involved in his creation, upholding, sustaining. He creates the unity, the order, the adaption of creatures. All things continue to work and function because of Christ. All the laws of this universe work and function because of Christ. That's whose kingdom. You and I, God in his grace has transferred us into. The one who upholds this creation. How did the author of Hebrews put it? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, verse 3, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Planets kept in their orbits, stars held in their places, viruses, only where he allowed them to go. Kept by his power. All creation is subservient to Christ. That's whose kingdom you and I are a part of. But Paul's not done, is he? <laughs> he's, it's as it were, he's just ramping up. He, he's just got it going. Now, Paul lays before us the fact that he is the head of the church. The head of the body. The church. And how does he phrase that? If we take that as our major heading? Well, what does that mean that he is the head of the church? End of verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Right, here we come back to that firstborn again. The one who by right rules. There is some sense in which we could say, this, this understanding of the firstborn from the dead points us back again to the resurrection. That, that Paul is certainly saying Christ 
is the resurrected Christ. And by that has placed, as it were, all things under his feet. The material world. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that is what Christ has conquered. He has conquered death. He has conquered hell. He has conquered the grave. He has conquered sin. He is the conqueror over the last enemy. And it is destroyed because of the resurrection of Christ. And because Christ is raised, that by right places him as the head of the body. That is his right. That is his privilege. That is his honor. Because of the resurrection. He is the one who now has authority over all. He is the rule, the cause, the thought of all things in regards to the church. The church looks to Christ and Christ alone as its ruler, as its head. Not somebody in Rome. Christ alone, Christ alone is the head of the church because he is the firstborn from the dead. Verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. And the word preeminent here means to be in the highest place. To be in the highest position. So we're going back. Why, you know, if you're diagramming this, why is Christ the head of the church? Because he is the firstborn from the dead, the resurrection. Because he is preeminent. Now think with me, what is it? What is it in the life of Christ that focuses primarily on the preeminence of Christ? You know what event that is? That's the ascension. That ascension, as Christ is lifted up and received back into glory, that ascension where he says now, all authority has been given unto me. Therefore, you go and make disciples. That ascension in which he is now given the name King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, my friends, do not mistake this. It's not he will be given it. Not it's, oh, he's got to earn that. Oh, he's got to come back and he's got to destroy Satan and all Satan's host and all of that. Then he'll be given. No, my friends, right now, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And you are part of that kingdom. The kingdom in which Christ is indeed the preeminent one. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Christ rules and reigns by the authority of the resurrection over all of this material world. Christ rules and reigns over all the dominions, all the kingdoms, all the powers of darkness. He rules and reigns by that ascension. Verse 
But it is by the cross. It is by the cross that he rules our hearts. It's by the cross that he reigns here in our service. It is by the cross, you see, that reconciliation is done. It is by the cross to reconcile to himself all things. It is by the cross that we are placed in a right relationship with God. I can't do that. I can't put myself in a right relationship with God. You can't. None of us can. There is nothing any one of us can ever do to put us in that relationship with God where everything is well. Only the cross can do that. And only the cross can do that for you and for me. Only the cross. Now lest you think, first of all, let, let's go back because... One thing we have to deal with here is that there will be those who jump on this and see, say, see, everybody is saved. And through him to reconcile him to himself all things. Well, wait, wait a minute. Under what heading is this? His work of reconciliation is done, how? As he is the head of the body, the church. The all things, to reconcile to himself all things, refers to those who are his. His people, his chosen, his loved. Those are the ones he reconciles to the Lord. He does it. How? By the cross. Paul's going on to explain that, isn't he, in that next paragraph. That's why I included that in our scripture reading. A little taste, Lord willing, of of where we'll be next week with this passage. Here, Paul is, as it were, just wetting our appetite for this just a little bit. Say, just understand the right of Christ as the head of the church to rule you. Because he reconciled you to God by making peace by making peace I've mentioned it before and it bears mentioning again because we are prone to to forget things in life it's something when I'm a rabbi in, in Bethlehem Alive, it's one of my little things that I talk to the kids about as they're coming through. Um, I always greet them with shalom. And when they're leaving the, the, the synagogue area, I say shalom once again. And I explain to them what shalom means and how it worked and how it functioned. In the Jewish culture, in the Jewish society, as, as you would come up to somebody in the street, okay, uh, you would say to them, shalom, peace. I'm okay with you. I, I'm all right with you. I have no problems with you. I'm not upset with you. I'm not angry with you. So if you're a Jew and you cross, cross paths with another Jew and that Jew doesn't say shalom, you know you're at odds. 
okay? No guesswork. Everybody knows, okay? Ooh, got to take, that's why Jesus could say, when you know your brother has something against you, go take care of it. How do I know it, my brother? Because you passed him on the way to church, and he didn't say shalom. Something's wrong in the relationship. Get it right. So as you come to one another, you say shalom. It's okay. We're all right. Nothing has happened to cause any void between us. You have a time together. You, 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 you talk. You perhaps share a meal. And as you exit the home, you say shalom once again. Meaning that while we were together, nothing happened to cause a separation. We are at peace. In essence, my friends, this is part of what we have missed, isn't it? This is part of what we have missed in the worship of God. Because God welcomes you in a singular way. He welcomes you into his presence in corporate worship. Peace. I'm okay with you because of Christ. I'm okay with you because of the cross. Now let's spend some time together. And that's what we're doing. We're spending some time together. And what's going to happen when you leave? God again says, now go in peace. Shalom, shalom, leave. It's all right because of Christ. It's not all right because of you or because of what you have done. It's all right because of Christ. God gives to us that shalom. He has the right to be the head of the church because through him we have been reconciled by his blood on the cross so that we can be at peace with God. And God is at peace with us. What an amazing, an amazing revelation God has given to us in his word. That in Christ, we might have peace. Do you need to hear that again today? Maybe not so much because of guilt of sin, but maybe the guilt of mistrust. Maybe the guilt of worry, maybe the guilt of anxiety, maybe the guilt of fear. You need to hear God, brothers and sisters. You need to hear God. Shalom. It's all right. Because of Christ. And God's people say, Amen.